Morning, church. My name is Tazama. The Bible reading today will be from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, up to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 20. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principle of oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washing, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the internal judgment. And this we will do in God, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and yet to being cursed and its end is to be bent. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belongs to salvation. For God is not unjust as not to overlook your works and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saint as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may, be not, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by, no one greater by whom to swear, he saw by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more conceivingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtains, the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God.
Tozama, thank you so much for that reading. Thank you to all our ladies who blessed us uh, this morning, served us by running the service. Uh, thanks to Bronwyn and the team. Uh, this is Women's Month, so you can expect a lot more of that. Uh, we love to showcase our uh, wonderfully talented ladies during Women's Month, so thank you for your service, ladies. Um, and not just in Women's Month, uh, always and everywhere. A few things I want to bring to your attention. Before I do that, let me tell you that uh, the 8 o'clock service felt like a population explosion. Okay, we were only 50, but it's the first time we've been 50 and, and, and 50 such exuberant souls uh, in, in months. So it was wonderful, and this is uh, no less a blessing. So thanks to you guys who came through. From what I understand, the bookings went like hotcakes. Uh, it was, if you were... If you were dozing, you missed out. Um, so it is fantastic to be together. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? At least that's my experience. Uh, this is so much better than preaching to a machine, I can promise you. Uh, another thing I want to highlight is Martin is with us. So I think that's worth a round of applause, don't you? Uh, He's been around, he's been around um, campus for a good month or so, but it's fantastic to have him back here with us on a Sunday. We feel whole again, we can breathe again. Uh, Martin, it's good to have you. Just a few other things I want to share with you before we come to God's Word. Uh, the first one is David's sabbatical. Uh, so David is overdue for a sabbatical. He's going to be on sabbatical the next three months. I asked him, um, he's, he's already on sabbatical, which is why he's not here for an interview, uh, but I asked him during the course of the week what we could pray for. He really wants to spend the time just resting in Christ, being refreshed and drawing close to Christ and um, really investing in his family. So those are worthy pursuits. So please be praying. Don't forget David. You may not see him for the next few months, but he's still very much a part of our family and Pusky and the kids. So please bear them up in prayer over these next three months. The other thing I want to share with you, another um, exciting thing that I want to share with you is our series that's coming up in the parables of Luke called the Upside Down Kingdom of God uh, that is starting next week. So we're going to step away from Hebrews. Uh, we'll come back. We're taking an intermission in Hebrews. Uh, we'll come back to that in a month or so time. But intervening, we're going to uh, take a deep dive into Jesus, the, parable of Jesus, the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel. So that promises to be great. And uh, we're going to have some fresh faces, some fresh voices uh, behind the pulpit. So I'm sure we're all thankful for that. That'll be really good. Um, just to share with you, because it is a family matter, and we bear all things uh, as a family, we rejoice in all things as a family, we, when we week by week make the financial appeal, it can sometimes feel like it's just routine as part of what we do on a Sunday, but it really is an appeal. Um, we are seeing the numbers, and the numbers tell us that our, our people, our families, and our singles are under financial pressure. And so we as a, as a church family are under, under financial pressure. Uh, we praise God that that's not true of everybody. And so if you are in a position to, to keep giving, please uh, don't grow weary of that good work. We really do uh, depend on God working through his people to keep the ministry going here at Christchurch. So, so, so it's a genuine appeal to you uh, to, to give of God's resources. I think it's time to, to pray, and then we'll come to God's word. So please join me. 
Father, we are so grateful to you that uh, we can gather and, and actually gather as your people. It's such a wonderful blessing, and um, you have graciously taught us that over these past few months. What a, what a privilege we have to gather as God's people under God's word and to, and to hear you speak to us collectively as your family that you bought with the precious blood of your son. But Father, we want to make the most of our time now. So please, will you lead us by your spirit, uh, lead us through your son to yourself. Give us uh, ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us soft hearts. We want uh, to have an encounter with you, Father. We want to meet with you uh, in all your glory. And so we pray that you'll be with us this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If I say the words, keep walking, what do you think of? Someone giggled already. Hey, there you go. Right, so I'm sure Felicity wasn't the only one. We try not to think of expensive whiskey in church, but that's where our minds go when you, when you say the words, keep walking. Uh, Johnny Walker have done a fantastic job with their branding. Even though I'm not sure exactly what whiskey has to do with keep walking, because very often whiskey is the enemy of keep walking. But uh, be that as it may, um, keep walking actually makes a whole lot of sense as a slogan for today's passage. Keep walking. Your most important step is the next one. Hebrews 5 and 6. There's our t-shirt for our next church camp. May the Lord speed us to our next church camp. And it would be so fitting because that's the heart of the Christian life. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. It's a long walk to freedom. That's why in 1678, John Bunyan, when he wanted to write an allegory of the Christian life, what did he call it? He called it The Pilgrim's Progress. Since then, that book has been translated into over 200 languages. It's never been out of print, not in 350 years. It's hard enough to write a book that actually goes into print. To write one that stays in print for 350 years is something else. Why is it such a success? It's such a success because it captures the essence of the Christian life. And it captures the essence of Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. If you've ever walked anywhere, you'll know that a journey goes through stages. You don't walk at one perfectly consistent pace from start to finish. And that's true of any journey. It's certainly true of the Christian journey. At any point in the pilgrimage, you will find Christians in a range of different states, a range of different conditions. Our passage is going to highlight for us four possible conditions for the Christian pilgrim and how they can be helped in those various states. So the first two need a warning to keep going. And the second two need an encouragement to keep going. The Christian journey can be a state of standing still, falling away, pressing forward, or following after. If you are standing still or falling away, you need a warning. If you're pressing forward or following after, you need encouragement. You need encouragement to keep going. We're going we're gonna to work through all four stages. 
And I think it's right for us, as we do that, to constantly be asking, where am I? Where am I in this pilgrimage? Which state do I find myself in, if I'm honest? And then to hear what the Lord has for us in that condition. So let's go for it. Standing still. If you're on a journey, how do you know you're standing still? The scenery doesn't change. That's Hebrews 5, verse 10. Jesus, let me read it for us. Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So at this point in the letter, the writer to the Hebrews wants to, he wants to press deeper into the high priesthood of Christ, but he's concerned that he can't because his people have become lazy listeners. They are content with what they know. They're content to, to stay where they are. They're standing still and they're quite happy with that. It's actually an embarrassment. As adults, they should be eating solid food. But instead, they prefer to suckle from their mothers. Now, um, imagine that I'm there at uh, Pumlani's house for a braai. And I'm standing there with the guys around the braai and... Uh, Pumlani is turning a beautiful steak as only Pumlani can. Actually, it's Ellen who's the guru, but let's just, just go with me on this. Hypothetically, it's Pumlani. He's turning that beautiful steak. I get handed a plate, and uh, Pum asks me which cut of meat I would prefer. And at that point, there's a knock at the door. And I say, uh, actually, Pum, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to pass on the steak. That's my mom. I'm just going to go and have a quick suckle, and, and that'll do me. If you're cringing, like I am, that's actually what the writer intends. It doesn't quite come across in the English, but that's the image he's going for. And that is us if we're standing still. It's an embarrassment. It's that kind of embarrassment. That's us if we are lazy listeners. Now, if you're a lazy listener, you don't come to God's word on a Sunday or in life group or in a one-to-one, or even in your own quiet time. You don't approach God's word to be challenged or changed or stretched or grown. You're content with where you are. You're quite assured of of what you know. And so you come to, to be entertained. You come as a critic. You come to be affirmed in what you already know. You come as a consumer, and a consumer of milk, because that's where you're comfortable. In that state, it's about whether the lesson or the sermon or the conversation was long enough or short enough. Uh, Was it interesting enough to hold your attention? Was it to my liking? Now, how do I know uh, so much about lazy listening? Well, of course, it's because I've been a lazy listener. I've gone through many seasons of lazy listening, and I continue to do so. When I'm going through a season of lazy listening, I come out of a sermon 
with my critique of the preacher. When I'm going through seasons of growth, I come out of a sermon with worship for Jesus. And the critique is reserved for me. Where can I change? Where can I grow? How do I repent of this thing? What did I learn? On this side of the pulpit, most of the time, I'm deeply concerned about what you guys think of my preaching. So I'm crushed by the criticism, or I'm absolutely elated by the praise. And of course, both of those responses are just rooted in sinful pride. In my better moments, in my better moments, all I care about is that we have grown in the Lord Jesus together. We've grown in the Lord Jesus, in our love for him, in our devotion for him, in our desire to follow him. I don't even come into the equation in my better moments. Many of you will know Fred Pace. Uh, Fred's our estate manager. Fred reminds me regularly that I'm nothing but a postman. And I love him for it because he's absolutely right. What matters whenever we approach God's word, whatever the platform, in small groups, one-on-one, like this on a Sunday, what matters is that we encounter the Lord through his word and we grow. We don't stand still. And this is a joint responsibility. It's a responsibility for the whole family. Now, preachers, and there are five or six or seven of us in, in, in our church family who, who preach regularly, preachers, we have a responsibility to keep growing, to getting better, to not standing still. And there's so much to say about that, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. But this text isn't addressed to preachers. It's addressed to us as listeners, which is why we're focusing there. Listen to what uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter says to listeners. Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it, as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as those who will go no further than they are carried by force. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be as busy as he. When it comes to solid food, you must open your mouths and digest it for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and hate an idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. This is our joint responsibility as a family. And the question for all of us, including the preacher, is this. Are you a lazy listener? Are you acting like an infant when you should be fully grown? How would you know? Well, we've really looked at one warning sign. One warning sign is if you approach the word of God, whether it's as an individual or collectively, if you approach the word of God as a consumer critic to be entertained rather than as a disciple to be grown. The other warning signs uh, that, we, that we can see in our text by looking at the marks of maturity, at what it means to be fully grown rather than an infant, what it means to be listening diligently and moving forward rather than standing still. And the writer gives them to us in verses 13 and 14. So have a look there. Firstly, if you are mature, you will be skilled in the word of righteousness. Again, this text poses a question to us. Are you growing in your understanding of God through his word? 
Or are you content with what you already know? I did PTS 10 years ago. I come to a service most Sundays. My friends, that's not enough. And in fact, whatever it is you do, whatever it is we do, it's never going to be enough because there is no end to what we can know of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul says this, the one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The question is, are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of who God is through his word? And we have so many opportunities to do that. Join a life group. Rafa's right here. He's saying amen, hallelujah. He's in charge of our life groups. Join a life group. We say it almost every week. My friends, you are impoverishing yourself of solid food if you do not join a life group. You are stunting your growth. Join a life group. Do explore. Sign up for explore. Join PTS. Read Christian books. Make sure they're good ones because there's a lot of rubbish. And you can ask us. We can help you with that. Study preeminently. Read God's word for yourself. Before you do anything else, read God's word for yourself. Ask him to help you understand by his spirit. Do not go on the internet. I hope you heard the change, the pitch in my voice, the change in volume. Do not go on the internet. Because most of that stuff is milk, and it's sour milk at best. You really need to be discerning to know what is good and what is not good on the internet. Please do not go on the internet. Trust your church family. Supremely trust God's word and read it for yourself. Do not go on the internet. Whatever it is you do, do not be content with where you are. That's the point. And there's more to maturity than that because secondly, the mature, verse 14, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is the Christian life. It's a pilgrimage. You have to walk it. You have to walk in wisdom. You don't download wisdom. You have to walk in it. It's not enough to know. You have to live this thing out. It involves, what does it say? It involves constant practice. It's not theory. It's not just theory. It's practice. We have to live it. So interesting, the great African theologian Augustine, he wrote an essay on the Trinity. Now, he understood that this great mystery of who God is in his person would be difficult for his readers to understand. I mean, there's nothing higher than than trying to grapple with who God is in his person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. So, so he understands this is, a, this is a profound mystery, and he wants to help his people understand. What's his advice to them? He writes advice to his readers. Do you know what, he, you know what the advice is that he gives them? Listen to this. You want to understand the Trinity? Let me advise you. Abstain from sin. Do good works. Engage in passionate prayer. If you want to understand who God is, read his word, do what it tells you. Live it out. Mind and body, word and deed, faith and practice, 
always go together, hold together in the Christian life. Whenever we separate them, we fall into error. We stunt our growth. The immature Christian will be content with what they think and they know about the grace of God and they will just get on, their, get on with their lives and their own agendas while they wait for heaven. The mature Christian will live with a constant holy discontent and they will know that the grace of God trains us, motivates us, moves us into godly living in the here and now. So again the question, which are you? Are you growing in maturity or are you immature and content to stand still? If it's the latter, then our writer has a very serious warning for you. The biggest danger of standing still is that you might fall away. And that's our second condition, falling away. In verses 6 to 8 of uh, chapter 6, Sorry, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, the passage we read. The writer is basically saying, and I'm just going to paraphrase for the sake of time, I can't let you stand still because standing still leads to falling away. And falling away is an irredeemable position. In verse 1 to 3, he says that we need to keep moving. People, come with me. We need to keep moving. We need to go on. We can't lay the foundation of faith in God again. We have to actually build on top of it. If you're running a race, you can't run the race without crossing the start line. That much is self-evident, right? You have to cross the start line. You have to start somewhere. But you also can't run the race by hanging around the start line. So let's try and make this concrete, okay? Let's imagine the comrades, the athletes in our midst, They would tell us that it's months and months of training, sacrifice and training before you arrive at start day. And then start day is upon you. And you get dressed in your gear and you pin that number to your chest front and back and you've got your race tag on your shoelaces and you've rubbed your muscles with deep heat and you arrive at the start line and you're anticipating the gun and the gun goes off and you hang around for 10 hours and hope to get a medal doesn't work like that does it you actually have to move you have to move from the start line through to the finish line if you don't you're disqualifying yourself you've fallen out of the race and there's no coming back when the race is over it's over that's Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 to 6 let's read it for it is impossible impossible In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted their heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, in other words, they've shown up at the start line, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, if you remember back to our series in Exodus, this was Pharaoh, wasn't it? This was Pharaoh. He tasted the goodness of the word of God. He tasted its truthfulness, its mercy for him and his people. He witnessed the power of the age to come in all those signs and wonders, the mighty hand of God. He, recognized, he even recognized God as his loving creator after the seventh plague. 
He recognized his own sin. He even promised to repent. But then he hardened his heart. And when he had hardened his heart for that seventh time, that was the point of no return. At that point, God gave him what he wanted. God said to him, if that's what you want, it's yours. He gave him over to his rebellion. He fell away beyond repentance. There was no turning back. How much more serious is this warning for us who have shared in baptism, tasted the Lord's Supper, who have seen and experienced the power of the Spirit at work in the church through the Word of God, who have recognized that Jesus died for our sins, If we fall away from that, there is nothing else. There is no other repentance. I'm sure you agree with me. This is a strong and scary warning. So how do you know if it applies to you? As Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. If God has rained on you all the blessings of Christ ministered through the church, rainy season after rainy season after rainy season, and yet you continue to produce nothing but thorns and thistles, well, it's likely that you've fallen away. And then there's nothing else. Nothing but the flame. That's what the passage says. If you turn your back on Christ and his cross then there is no hope of another repentance. There's only the flame. That is not a happy ending. So don't stand still. This warning is real. It's real. But of course, it's not the only thing to say because it's not the only thing that the scriptures say, is it? When we read the scriptures, we know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We know that neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know that those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. We know that Jesus gives his disciples the gift, the free gift of eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. In other words, we know that once you have been saved by a miraculous act of God, a gracious act of God, you have been saved for eternity. Because who can oppose an act of God? You have been saved for eternity and that cannot change. So why then the warnings about falling away? Let me try and illustrate this for us. So many of you will um, know Chapman's Peak Drive, that beautiful drive in Cape Town. Um, One of the most spectacular drives in the world, but also a dangerous drive. Lots of twists and turns and switchbacks and sharp uh, corners and boulders falling from above. It's, It's quite a hairy road. Now, if you were watching TV in the 1980s, all right, uh, like I was, so it's A-Team, MacGyver, Knight Rider, Classics, the glory days of television. If you're watching TV in the 80s, you'll, you might remember an advert with a Mercedes-Benz 
driving over Chapman's Peak. So he approaches from the Hart Bay side. And as he approaches, he gets that first corner. And this is a reenactment. This advert is a reenactment of real events. He gets to the first corner and he misjudges it. He goes over the edge. The Merc rolls and rolls and rolls over the cliff. Lands at the bottom. Driver gets out unscathed. Mercedes-Benz, amazing. Quick as you like, BMW, follow it up with a counter-advert that I think only lasted a weekend because we're not allowed comparative advertising in South Africa. But anyway, the advert, BMW, approaches from the Hart Bay side, gets to that first corner. Everyone's on the edge of their seats, sails through. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. All the way through Chapman's Peak. Caption, BMW beats the Benz. If you didn't get it, please come and see me afterwards. We need to review your church membership. Christian life is a lot like driving Chapman's Peak. It is stunning. It's beautiful. There is actually no road you'd rather take in life. But it is dangerous. It's a mountain pass. There are sharp turns and twists. And you have to slow down at certain places. There are hazards. There are rocks falling from above. Lots of places where you can lose control. That's where the engineer comes in. He's put up signs everywhere warning you. Sharp turn ahead. Slow down. The chevron, the guardrails. Those big overhanging precipice nets to protect you from the falling boulders. The camber of the road adjusted so that you stay on the inside. So it is with the warnings in Scripture. They are one means by which God keeps us to the end. And for those who drive over the cliff, we have to conclude that they had no regard for the engineer and his warning at the end of the day. They had total disregard for the engineer. At the end of the day, they did not care for the engineer and his warnings. The warnings are one means by which God keeps us going, keeps us to the end. But they're not the only means. Many people know the book of Hebrews as a book of severe warnings, and it is. We've just read one. It is a book of severe warnings. But it's also a book of deepest encouragement. And what's so interesting is that the writer often pairs them, puts them right together. So he's using everything in his arsenal to keep us going to the end. We've just had a severe warning, but then look at what follows it. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The warning is there, and it's an act of love. Parents know to warn your children is an act of love. The warnings are there to keep the Hebrews safe, to keep them moving. But the warning is followed by this, this wonderful verse. And note the gentle tone. He calls them beloved. They are beloved. And he is sure of better things for them, things that belong to salvation. How can he be so sure? He knows them by their fruit. Look at the next verse, verse 10. 
He knows them by their fruit. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. He sees past fruit. He sees present fruit. He is sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And that brings us to our third condition, pressing forward. The writer says to these Christian pilgrims, you are tired from the journey. You've got blisters, you've got bruises and cuts, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're absolutely spent, you're exhausted. You're wondering whether you can carry on. You might even be wondering, am I cut out for this thing? Am I even a pilgrim? And the writer says, take a moment. Take a moment just to rest. Look at where you are. Look at where you are. Look at the view from here. Look back at the road, how far you've come. You're a pilgrim. You are a pilgrim. Look at how far you've come. And all you need to do is take the next step. Just the next one. I hope you see that this encouragement is for you. And it's for me. You might be really struggling in the Christian life. It's just been hard. Life has just been hard. We've spent two weeks really digging into that. The brokenness of this world, the wickedness, the corruption, the unrest, the COVID, financial struggles, relational struggles. I don't need to give you the catalog. You're living it. And then there's sin. And there's sin in the church. Your brothers and, Christus, your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you, whom you love deeply, have also disappointed you deeply. And on top of that all, there's your own sin. You repent, you pray, you desperately want to be better, but you just keep falling and falling. And you start to wonder, am I cut out for this thing? Am I even a Christian? Through his word this morning, your heavenly father, your loving heavenly father, He's putting his arm around you and he's saying, just rest a moment. Look at the view from here. Look, let's just look back together. What do you see? I'll tell you what I see. I see a person who's walked a long way. Look at how far you've come. I see a person who's changed and grown. Look at how selfish you were when we started this thing. And now just reflect on your journey. Look at all the random acts of love and kindness littering the way. When we started, you didn't think you had a hope of getting here. And yet here we are. He says, look back and be encouraged. Be encouraged. Take courage. And then he says, look forward. That's verse 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look forward. Look at the prize at the end. You will inherit every single thing I've promised you. And look at this road that winds its way up to the finish. Look at all of those who are ahead of you in this race. 
And notice those who've already finished, just ordinary pilgrims like you and me, and yet they've finished the race. This race can be finished. It is finished every day by others who've gone ahead of you. You will finish. You will finish. Just take the next step. That's what pressing on looks like. That's the encouragement we have. Look back. Look at what God has already done in your life. Look forward. Look at what God is doing in the lives of others and those he's brought all the way to the end, how he's taken them all the way home, how he gets them across the line. Look at what's waiting for you when you cross the line. Look back. Look forward. Take the next step. That's pressing on. And that, if you like, is our subjective encouragement. It's the witness of God's work in our own lives. So it's how we experience God for ourselves and in the lives of those we know. But there's, even an, there's an even deeper encouragement that's outside of ourselves. An objective encouragement, if you like. An encouragement that comes from the nature of God himself, who he is, and how he relates to us in love. And when we grasp that, then we are in our fourth condition, following after. We read about it this morning, but let's just reflect on the fact that God made a promise to bless Abraham and to bless all of humanity, in fact, all of creation through him. And he swore by himself. Why? Because there's no one higher or more faithful to swear by. There is no more secure place for a, for a promise to be housed and anchored. So he swears by himself. But he doesn't leave it there. Not only did he make the promise and swear by his own perfect character, he confirms the promise with a covenant. Now we have to recognize this about covenants. They're not for God. They're for us. They're for us because our faith is weak. The covenants are there to help us trust the promises of God. A covenant is a formalizing of a promise. It's the difference between being engaged to get married and getting married. In his covenant, and I'm thinking particularly of his covenant in Genesis 15. You can read about it. In that covenant, God committed to cursing himself if he did not follow through on his promise to bless humanity. He said, I will curse myself. Now, that is very unusual covenant making. Very unusual covenant making. He promises to curse himself if he does not bless humanity. You can read about it in Genesis 15. You can also read about it in the New Testament where God fulfills that covenant in Christ because Christ bears the curse of our sin and death in order to win the blessings that God had promised to all of humanity through Abraham. The new covenant, based on those same old promises, the new covenant is written in the blood of Christ. And all of this, everything I've just shared with you, so that we might be encouraged to take the next step towards finishing the race. Look at verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, 
he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have what? Strong encouragement. Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Strong encouragement to finish the race. I love these verses. I hope you do too. When God wanted to show his people just how determined he is to bless us, he added a covenant to the promise. Why? So that we can have courage to finish the race. Our courage is rooted in the character and the unbreakable plans of a God who is determined to love us in spite of ourselves. What a hope that is. We finish with this two really beautiful metaphors that add encouragement to encouragement. Verse 19. We have this as a sure, everything he's just written about. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If you feel, and I'm sure that many of us do at the moment, like a small boat in the middle of a raging storm, and you are being battered by the waves, and you are being shredded by the wind, and you are being pulled off course by strong undercurrents, The wonderful news, the wonderful gospel news for us this morning is that we have an anchor. We have an anchor. And this is not an ordinary anchor. It's not an anchor that goes down into the ocean to lock us in the depths to the ocean floor. This is an anchor that ascends and it goes up into the heavenly throne rooms and it locks us to the very throne of God. You have an anchor for your soul. Memorize that phrase. Just cherish that phrase. You have an anchor for your soul. Meditate on that. Savor it. Suck the marrow out of that. An anchor for your soul. Whatever this life throws at you, you have an anchor for your soul. You are fixed, unbreakably fixed to the throne of God, and he is the one who is drawing you home. How is it that you have this anchor? We switched back to our main metaphor. Jesus is the one who's gone there. He's the one behind the curtain. He's the one sitting at God's right hand. He is the forerunner. He's the one who's run before us. The one who cut the path. Because there was no way back to God. There was no road for us to travel. It needed a forerunner. It needed someone to cut that path so that we have access, so that there is a road. Without him, there is no way back to God. But with Christ, in him, there is. And he will get us home. Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 is about the Christian journey. There are warnings for those who are content to stand still. There are also deep encouragements for those of us who are exhausted but pressing on.
And the message of both is clear. Keep walking. The most important step you can take is the next one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these warnings and encouragements. Thank you that they are such a wonderful testimony to your love for us, that you would care enough to warn us, to encourage us. We know that you use both to keep us safe, to keep us going. Please, Lord, keep us from lazy listening, from being content, from standing still. Help us to press on and to follow after. We thank you supremely for the Lord Jesus, who is an anchor for our souls and the forerunner in this race. Help us by your spirit to trust him and to keep going. Amen. As we said, it's been so good to be back. Uh, I hope this is the last time we have to welcome you back. I really do. But it's really been good. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute joy. And, and I hope that during the course of the week, God, in the power of his spirit, will help you to take the next step. Help us all to take the next step. God willing, we'll be back. Um, it'll be parables. It'll be the upside down kingdom of God. That is exciting. And so we look forward to that. Have a good week. And um, God bless you all. Take care.